1: We're only a few weeks away from the January 5th runoff in Georgia that will determine control of the Senate. Early voting starts on December 14th. And if you're looking for ways to support groups on the ground, making sure every voter makes their voice heard, sign up to Adopt Georgia. We'll be sending new opportunities to donate and volunteer every week between now and January. So head over to votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia to learn more about what you can do today. That's votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than Now. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. Well, everybody, I hope you're ready to light the menorah and spin that dreidel, because Hanukkah officially started this week. A little later on in this episode, we'll be welcoming John Lovett for a very special and at least partially Hanukkah-themed edition of, Am I Going to Hell for This? But first, let's get to today's big story. Throughout the course of this season, we've had incredible guests from the Jewish faith, who have helped to explain how Judaism has the history, wisdom, and insight to meet our current moment. But today, I want to focus a little less on Jewish theology and a little more on Jewish magic. Nobody knows magic better really than the incredible author Alice Hoffman, whose book Practical Magic gifted the world with a movie adaptation that featured Sandra Bullock and Nicole Kinman casting spells and seeking revenge on a wily man. Alice's later books often employ the use of magic to help her main characters as they seek justice, redemption, and happiness in an otherwise hostile world. This was particularly prescient in her novel, The World That We Knew, where Alice utilized Jewish folklore to help add elements of magical realism to a story about the Holocaust. It was a powerful storytelling device. It at once showed readers the horrific reality of that time period, while also giving all of us a reason to keep the faith. After all, what's more magical than a miracle, really? To help explore some elements of Jewish folklore and make the case for why all of us should believe in magic, I'm honored to welcome the brilliant Alice Hoffman here today. Well, Alice Hoffman, I have to say what an honor it is to be on with you. I am a huge fan of your books. I was a fan of your books before I realized that the movie adaptation of Practical Magic is like a cult favorite (laughs) among homosexuals everywhere, I was just wondering, do you know that Practical Magic is like a
2: homosexual fan favorite? I do know that. I do know that. (laughs) (laughs) I do know that. And I think that there used to be, unless I'm mistaken, there used to be a drag version every Halloween at Joe's Pub. And I always wanted to go and just like never was there on Halloween. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I've heard. But I want to see it.
1: That would be incredible. Well, I hope next Halloween in a post-pandemic world, cross our fingers and toes and everything else, that... You get to go witness that, and I um, i think that I will be lining up for it. I have your book, Magic Lessons, here right in uh, front of me. I'm so excited yeah. to talk to you more a little bit about that. But, but first, I want to talk specifically about the role that Judaism plays in some of your work. Now, before I even got on with you, I was told that you are not a strictly observant Jew. Is that correct? That's correct.
2: That's very correct. So what is your relationship to spirituality? I'm a Hebrew school dropout. What's my connection? (laughs) My connection is really through my grandmother. It's really completely cultural, completely through New York City, the Bronx, and Brooklyn. And I feel like I didn't really write about Judaism until my grandmother died. And then I felt this huge loss without her and, you know, and then kind of turned to writing about it.
1: What were the kinds of things that she taught you about Judaism or, or just Jewish culture in general?
2: She told me, don't trust anyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's a she good one. She told me, don't live anywhere but New York. In fact, <laughs> okay, I was living in one. California. She made me come back. And then she told me about her childhood in Russia, which, which those were kind of the first stories I ever heard. And they, to me, seemed like fairy tales when she told them. You know, she couldn't remember where exactly she had come from, but you know she told me the the river froze all year long and when she had to go down in the mornings and get the water cuz she was the oldest girl and there'd be wolves waiting for her and i just felt like you know when she talked i kind of entered this fairy tale world even if we were on a new york city bus going to the lower east side you know we were in some fairy tale world together
1: wow and fairy tales magic fantasy it seems to play a role in a lot of your work as an author, specifically, of course, I'm thinking of the Practical Magic Now series, uh, but also in the worlds that we knew where, I mean, I don't know if you refer to it as such, but I felt like the introduction of Jewish folklore in that book, it almost felt like elements of magical realism were, were taking place in that book. Is that how you would describe it?
2: Yeah. You know, I always feel like, you know, the original magic was stories told by grandmothers to grandchildren you know, cautionary tales, do do this, don't do that. But there's so much magic in Jewish folk tales and Jewish stories that I feel like it's kind of the original magic. You know, I wanted to tell a story about the Holocaust, but I didn't want to, the story has been told so many times that I wanted to tell it in a different way. So I think that's why I started to read, you know, folktales and fairy tales to kind of get this sense of how I could tell the story in a different way, a way that meant something to me.
1: And were you worried that introducing any elements of magical realism may have taken away from, I guess, the the honesty of the storyline, right? Like, yes. Isn't that a delicate balance to kind of draw when you're talking about a horrific and catastrophic event in human history that really is a story about the capacity of human cruelty and then introducing magic in there? Were you ever worried about coming across insensitive or trivializing that moment?
2: I was terrified. I was mostly terrified to... I, you know, usually I don't want to meet the people that have anything to do with the story I'm writing. But this time, um, it was like 2016. I was very depressed, as many people were. And I felt like I wanted to meet Holocaust survivors because I wanted to find out how people survived extreme trauma terrible times. And so I was lucky enough to meet several survivors here in this country and become friends with them. They were people who had been children during the war and now were in their 80s and 90s. And also then I went to France and, and met others and I was terrified for them. Their, their reaction is what mattered to me in terms of the book and would it feel too different. But I think they had a great reaction. And I think I was trying to get to the kind of feelings and the feelings a child would have and seeing things kind of in a magical way. It is like a fairy tale. You know, these most of these kids now in their 80s and 90s were sent away by their parents for... Uh, so that they would survive. And they never saw their parents again. And it seemed to me that is kind of the beginning of every fairy tale, right? You lose your parents, you're in the woods, you're trying to survive, there are monsters. And it just seemed like kind of the perfect setup for a fairy tale. But I was you're completely right, very afraid about their reaction. And luckily they seemed to love it. And also I had traveled with, in France with a historian and I was also very afraid of his reaction because his day job was to search for mass graves that they're still finding in in Belarus and the Ukraine. He said to me such a wonderful thing. He said, you told the story in a way I would have never imagined it. And I really felt it. And I always feel that as a writer, I want people to feel. That's that's my goal.
1: That's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Well, one of the ways in which you kind of provided a guardian for the main character of the world that we knew was you told the story of the golem am i pronouncing that right is it golem or yes. golem
2: i think i think you're right <laughs>
1: yeah okay can you tell me how you came across the story of the golem and what the story of the golem is in jewish folklore
2: yeah well i'd always heard about it and i had read the ib singer um, retelling of the story it's kind of like it's a, it's a very old folktale it's really about that there is this figure that the jews can call upon in times when they need a protector But the problem with calling upon the Gollum is that if he gets too strong, he's kind of a monster. If he gets too strong, he'll turn against his own maker. So it's a very, you know, a brief lifespan for Gollum. And also, uh, you know, it was interesting because when I was doing research, I had this guy driving me around. He was terrific. And, And at the end, we went to Geneva and he said, I want to show you someplace. And he took me up to this big estate and he said, this is where Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And I realized Frankenstein is really another golem story. Yeah. Right. That's right. I could see yeah. that. It was such a weird experience. And, and I was, you know, gutsy enough to knock on the door and, and there was a maid and she let me kind of look around the mansion where this, this had happened. But, um, all of the golem stories are all very male. You know, usually it's a, it's a male scholar, rabbi, magician who creates the golem. The golem is male. And in my book, it's a young girl who creates the golem for a mother who wants to have her daughter protected and the golem is female. So it's a very different kind of story.
1: That's right. Yeah. And and a lot of your books have this kind of element of women using forces that are kind of beyond nature, if you will, to help them, I guess, navigate their lives, help them survive, help them accomplish great things, um, help them find connections to one another. So that also felt like a, a a really nice continual thread throughout your body of work, right?
2: Yeah, I think I want to tell the stories of women who couldn't tell their stories. Like they, you know, there's so few stories about women in the ancient world and there's just, you know, women didn't get to tell their stories. And I wrote a book uh, about Camille Pizarro's mother uh, and they they were Murano Jews who, who went to St. Thomas. And I thought it was so interesting. There was nothing written about her even though he he was so incredibly famous that you know the father of impressionism and i read this book of his where he wrote a thousand letters and he didn't mention his mother once even <laughs> though she she was supporting him um wow. until until she was like 90 so i just felt like there are all these women whose stories you know haven't been able to be told
1: mm. That's so, that's so interesting. You know, I'm Christian. I grew up Christian. And I guess folklore just isn't necessarily something that I would immediately connect with Christianity. I'm sure upon further reflection, I can find some examples of things that one could call folklore. There's certainly mysticism that exists in different parts of Christianity and Catholicism. But I wonder, does folklore feel unique to Judaism in a way, or or is there a reason that folklore is so intrinsically tied to Judaism in this way?
2: you know, I don't know because I think, well, I I don't know much about Christianity or about anything else, but I think kind of the lives of the saints and it's the same thing, kind of like the Bible in a way is folklore, you know, it's all of these myths about, you know, where, where people came from and how the battles they fought and the children they had. And, um, but I think more of it kind of like, as I was saying, this kind of familial telling of stories for me, that's kind of Jewish folklore is the stories that you get from your family.
1: Right. And I, I also, you know, would point out too, that it seems as though Jewish people have been preserving their own text and their own histories and their own stories for so long, despite such great adversity. And so there seems to be some really nice element to incorporating folklore into a story of the Holocaust and in, in the way that you did, because it's emerging of so many important pieces of Jewish
2: history. That, that's, of how I felt. Thank you so much. I, I really feel like, I think it's a cultural thing is that it's so, books are so important. Telling stories are so important. And it's funny because when I was doing research for um, magic lessons and I discovered, I, I mean, I didn't know anything about this, but that over 95% of women in um, England in the 17th century were illiterate. And in so many cultures, women were illiterate, like without the power of the word, you were kind of helpless.
1: Wow. That's so interesting. This idea of Jewish folklore that we're talking about, I feel like we can also connect to practical magic, magic lessons, the rules of magic, because you employ this idea of spirituality in a lot of your books. And I'm not sure if you would call it spirituality. You'd probably maybe refer to it as magic, as this device that allows your characters to accomplish things or tap into a different kind of world. Like what do you think it is that drew you to witchcraft as this like first element of i guess exploring those themes in your in your work?
2: Well, I I think that the witch is the only mythic female figure that has power. And I think little girls, you know, still dress up as witches on Halloween. There's still something about being a witch and I I recently during covid I've been cleaning up my whole house and I found a um something I had done in third grade, and it was a drawing of a witch. And I just feel like I have been interested in this my whole life long.
1: That's incredible. And I guess, do you find that there's a similarity between the role that magic plays in something like Practical Magic or the Rules of Magic and the role that the golem played in the book, The World That We Knew? Well,
2: I think the the golem is kind of more of a spiritual figure in some ways, but also she's learning she's learning how to be human. So she's both practical and magical. And I'm always interested in (laughs) that kind of interfacing of those two things, like how magic or spirituality functions in the real real world, the real gritty world.
1: Right. And Magic Lessons takes us like way farther back in time, right, in, into um, a different kind of element of the of the Owens family. So in, in that sense, what were the more interesting things that you learned about witchcraft when you were studying it to produce these three books?
2: Well, you know, one thing that really shocked me after the writing of it is that I didn't realize, you know, I mean, I didn't know COVID was going to happen, but that the book takes place right after the the plague years in England. And one of the interesting things I found in my research before all this happened was that um, the Owens family makes this black soap. They do it in all three books. They've been doing it for mm-hmm. 25 years and it's antibacterial and it makes you look young. And it's, it, but I, I read that women who were healers were much more successful in saving their patients during the plague years than physicians who were mostly quacks at the time because they, the women washed their hands. And that was basically the reason. And I just thought it is so, it's happening right now. The same thing is happening right now.
1: That's so fascinating. So you've talked about visiting Masada as a spiritual experience. Could you tell me more about that and what it actually felt like in the moment and how you started to process it after the fact?
2: Well, I didn't expect that to happen. I had never experienced it before. I went to Masada not thinking that I was going to write a book. I I was visiting my family. It was August. Nobody told me not to go in August. It was super hot. But when we got there, I really felt like I could feel the people who had been there before me. I had never had that experience before. I almost felt haunted in a very deep way. As while I was walking along, I saw a sign that said there had been survivors. And that's something I'd never heard about the story of Masada. I, I thought everyone had been had committed suicide so that they weren't taken captive by the Romans, but there had been survivors. And the minute I saw that sign, I knew it was a novel because I'm always interested in survivorship. And I, oh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a breast cancer survivor, but I've always been interested in survivorship. But then I went down to the museum and I saw the the belongings of the women who had been there, the shoes and the clothes and the beads and the makeup. And I just felt like I had had kind of this visitation and this was a story I was supposed to tell.
1: And I can't help but point out, I mean, that's such a, that is magic in and of itself, is it not? It's like someone or something urging you to tell this story that has been relatively un- or under-told.
2: Yeah, and actually, I went back a few years later as the guest of of the person who kind of is in charge of Masada, and we went very early in the morning together, and no one else was there, and he said to me, which was really moving to me, because he had been at Masada for so many years taking care of it, he said he had never before he read my book thought about the women who had been there. And I thought, well, then my job is done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: yes, you're helping, you're helping to now uh, inform history, as as it were. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. That's really that's really special.
2: Um, thank you. So,
1: in all of this kind of like uh, writing and research that you've done on magic, do you feel like it's given you a better understanding of what magic is, or did you always have this appreciation for and respect for magic?
2: I think I always had an appreciation for it. But for me, the real magic, I mean, I have to say, was always books. I mean, that for me was magic. That's what changed my life. That's what let me see that there were other possibilities. Let me escape, you know, from an unhappy childhood, from a terrible neighborhood, from, you know, all those things. It was all books and libraries.
1: How do you feel like you're manifesting magic in your life? Is it by reading? Is it by writing? Is it both? Or are you? do you have some sort of spiritual practice of your own?
2: I think it's, at this point, it's really more writing. I miss reading and being a fanatical reader, but it's pretty hard to do both. And I don't like to read novels while I'm writing novels. So I think for me, it is, it, it's, kind of, I don't know if it's a spiritual experience or it's like a drug experience, but writing for me is very transporting. It's really takes me to another, another place completely.
1: Mm. Obviously for so many people, it's been a really difficult year And it's in human nature, I think, to look to writers to help us make sense of or escape the world that we're living in. And so I wonder if, as we bring this lovely conversation to a close, you have any words of wisdom or advice to us as we prepare to enter 2021?
2: Well, I think, you know, my advice is to read Ray Bradbury. He was my favorite writer growing up, and he still is my favorite writer. And his book, Fahrenheit 451, is all about how important books are in changing the world and how how politicians very often want to burn books. That's the first thing they want to do because books are so dangerous because they're so full of magic. And they're so, uh, so I really feel like the most important thing to do is to always make time to read
1: Okay. I think that's all we have for you today, Alice. Thank you so much for taking the time. I'm such a a big fan. It was such an honor. I also am from New England. So your books just like have and like a whole uh, New England to New York to LA, but your books just are, are so beautiful and they're so powerful. I could read them a million times over and um, I'm so excited to see what else is coming? And I'm so excited to finish this. I'm only on like page 50, so I can't wait.
2: Oh, thank you. It's it's really been fun. I mean, you're so comfortable to talk to and I really appreciate you asking me.
1: Thank you. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Businesses have had to be flexible this year from working remotely to pivoting their business models for long-term survival and growth. Restaurants are moving their dining outdoors and adding takeout and catering. And some consumer packaged goods companies have shifted to focus more on surface cleaners or personal hygiene products. So if you're in charge of hiring for your business, these pivots have made your job even more challenging, especially if you have to hire for brand new roles. Thankfully, there's one place that you can always count on to make hiring faster and easier.
3: ZipRecruiter.com unholy. When you post a job on ZipRecruiter, it gets sent to over 100 100- Top job boards with just one click, and then ZipRecruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. So it is no wonder to me that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. That's no time. So see for yourself right now. You can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash unholy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash unholy. Let ZipRecruiter take hiring off your plate so you
1: can focus on growing your business. Go to ZipRecruiter. slash unholy. ZipRecruiter, the smartest
3: way to hire. Unholier than Now is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you, Philip Picardi, from achieving your goals? Well, the pandemic for one thing. Okay, I mean, one. it's
1: really hard to it's really hard to stay focused and also to stay productive, or inspired, or committed to work. Um, When it feels like it's just general doom around us. So obviously I could see why BetterHelp would absolutely help to mitigate some of those concerns and maybe get you back on track. And that's why it's great that BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist to connect in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 24 hours from the safety of your own home. And really, it's not self-help because it's a licensed professional. So it's professional counseling. And you can send a message
3: to your counselor anytime. You'll get a timely and thoughtful response back. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp was Zoom-in before Zoom even got Zoom-in. All without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating hitting great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change to counselors if needed. It's way more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. And the service is available for clients worldwide. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally uh, available for many of you. Um, so you've got licensed professionals who specialize in depression got it stress got it anxiety got it relationships trauma sleeping anger family conflicts lgbt matters grief self-esteem anything you share is confidential it's convenient professional affordable uh and you know they post these testimonials on their site it's really changing people's lives it's great
1: in fact so many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states i want you to start living a happier life today as a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com unholy. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com unholy. Unholier Than now is brought to you by Kitty Poo Club. If you guys follow me on Instagram, you will know that I have two adorable cats, Freddie and Juniper. And as much as I love my sweet fur ginger babies, I do not love cleaning their litter box and I do not love how smelly that litter box can get. And luckily, Kitty Poo Club is here to help alleviate those
3: very shared and familiar concerns of anyone who owns a cat. Kitty Poo Club is an all-in-one litter box solution designed to be convenient for you and Juniper. Every month, Kitty Poo Club delivers an affordable, high-quality, recyclable litter box that's pre-filled with the litter of your choice. The boxes are leak-proof, thank God, eco-friendly, and have a fun design for every season. So you know we're looking forward to the holiday box. When the month
1: is up, just recycle the box and Kitty Poo Club will automatically deliver a new one to you. No changing used litter and no more cleaning the box. You can customize your order based on how many cats you have and what type of litter they prefer. And Kitty Poo Club has a no risk guarantee, so you can easily customize or cancel anytime.
3: And right now, Kitty Poo Club is offering you 20% off your first order when you set up AutoShip by going to kittypooclub.com and entering promo code unholy. Just go to kittypooclub.com and enter promo code unholy to get 20% off when you set up AutoShip. That's kittypooclub.com. And don't forget to enter promo code unholy at checkout.
1: Unholier Than Now is brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female first canned wine brand <laughs> that was founded to change not only the way a product is consumed, but the way in an industry and culture have operated for generations. In an industry that's almost exclusively masculine, Bev is breaking norms and creating something from the female perspective that is approachable,
3: fun, and consumer-centric. They have three varietals, rosé, sauv blanc, and pinot gris, as well as a limited edition extra fizzy sparkling wine for your holidays. Phil, which of those is your favorite?
1: I personally always prefer a Pinot Gris because it's like Mm -hmm. uh, drinking a Pinot Grigio, one of my favorites, except it sounds French and I love Mm -hmm. to just feel a little bit fancier, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah. Put on your
1: little beret. (laughs) Luckily, Bev's wines are dry, crisp, and a little fizzy. Super refreshing and delicious. They have zero sugar and only three carbs and 100 calories per serving. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is actually a glass and a half of wine. Perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. A 24 pack is equal to eight bottles of wine and their four packs are the perfect and cutest holiday gift for everyone on your list. Bev
3: ships straight to your door and shipping is always free. We've worked out an exclusive deal for Unholier Than Thou podcast listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on all orders. And I suggest, personally, trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack. So you can check out yeah. all the delicious... Oh, Ladies' Night! For your late Zoom-in Ladies' Night. Uh, someone to all your lady friends. Uh, and so you could all try the delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com slash unholy to use code unholy at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash unholy unholy
2: unholier
1: than now is brought to you by lord jones we have a new sponsor that we're really excited about lord
3: jones makers of the world's finest cbd products cbd is all the rage these days but pioneering brand lord jones is considered the gold standard for years they've been changing people's lives with their premium cbd products lord jones has long been the favorite of celebrities worldwide showing up on the instagram feeds of hollywood's biggest names go check for yourself
1: And now they're inviting you to experience the finest CBD products available from world-class skincare to tinctures to decadent gumdrop confections. If you're Mm. curious about what CBD can do for you, trust me, you want to start with the best. Lord Jones is crafted with the highest quality ingredients and premium hemp derived CBD that's lab tested for purity, strength,
3: and consistency. Plus Lord Jones makes the perfect gift. Go to LordJones.com slash unholy to get 25% off your first order. Go to LordJones.com slash unholy to get 25% off your first order. That's LordJones.com slash
0: unholy. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will rain. It is time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. For your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
1: Okay, now it's for my very favorite segment, Am I Going to Hell for This?, where I invite friends holy and unholy but mostly unholy, to help me determine what is and isn't sinful about our daily lives. Today's guest is none other than the fabulous John Lovett. John, thanks for being here.
4: Hi. Thank you so much for having me. So glad to be here for this segment in which I am asked vaguely uncomfortable questions.
1: Well, you know, John, I I do want to just issue a disclaimer that these questions are indeed from the audience and not from people who work for you and know you intimately. (laughs) So if they appear at all too personal, it's just purely coincidental.
4: Okay. Okay. Okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you a few questions. We're going to have a little back and forth discussion, and then I'll see you in hell. Does that sound good? Okay.
4: Sounds great. Okay. Sounds great. All right,
1: let's get started. The first one is my favorite. Am I going to hell for not watching The Undoing starring Nicole Kidman on HBO Max?
4: Wait, sorry. Just so I understand. When you say am I, am I answering for me or am I now answering for you? Do you change the... You're answering in in general. Okay. Um, Yeah, this is is general life advice. So, uh, look, I think that in these times, we all should watch exactly what we want when we want it. We should feel no shame for watching things that are silly or depraved. We should also uh, feel okay with not watching something that everyone is telling us to watch. That should be okay, too. I will watch The Undoing. I haven't watched it yet. I have seen some of The Coats,
1: you haven't watched The Undoing? No, I haven't watched it yet. I'll get this to This is, it. listen, this is, I just feel like it's a gay rite of passage.
4: So how am I supposed, how, look, I just got through the I was crown, getting
1: very angry. All right?
4: No one is going to tell me that I'm not, Netflix knows how gay I am, all right? And that's okay. all that matters. This is between me and my streaming platform. I will watch The Undoing, but I have many facets to my oh. personality. I can contain- okay. Multitude's Philip Bacardi. Okay. And uh, yes, there is a part of me that is saying, turn on the undoing. Let's see Nicole Kidman uh, take a uh, soapy drama out for a spin yet again. I'll get in that car. I'll go for that ride. But another part of me is saying, hey, maybe it's time to watch season two of The Mandalorian because then you can watch all the episodes before the finale airs next Friday. Like these are some of the things that are just going on for me right now.
1: Yeah, these are complicated ethical negotiations that are happening. I can Mm -hmm. tell that you're Mm -hmm. slightly tormented by them. So um, I I understand. I appreciate the answer. Um, Let's move on to another facet of your multifaceted personality. One of the anonymous questions from our audience and definitely not from Crooked Media employees is, (laughs) am I going to hell for choosing my PlayStation 5 over my fiance?
4: First of all, I don't think I have to choose. I will say, (laughs) when the PlayStation 5 first arrived, there was some uh, polite uh, disputation over who's using the PS5, who's not using the PS5, though I do believe we have come to a uh, romantic and satisfactory uh, detente in in which we alternate uh use of the PlayStation Five and ultimately I think it did make our relationship stronger.
1: It it sounds like um a very uh nerdy form of foreplay. Am I am I ascertaining something here? <laughs> sure. Sure you are. <laughs> Somehow okay. that answer made me sadder than the the prospect of two <laughs> homosexuals fighting over a video game device. Um, but that, that is totally fine. So so is your answer that you are not going to hell for choosing the PlayStation 5 over the fiancé?
4: No, I should go to hell. That's I should go to hell okay. for that. Perfect. Okay, That's great. Fair. I'm sure Ronan will be pleased with that answer.
1: Um, this one, um, also anonymous, also definitely not from a Crooked Media employee, but very... Slightly alarming.
4: Am I going to hell for
1: having a dog engineered in a lab? What is this about?
4: That just—they're just talking about a golden doodle. They're just talking about my sweet little golden doodle pundit. <laughs> and the answer Was that is no. Engineered I'm not. in a lab. It's just look. Is it an unholy creation, the merging of the golden retriever and the poodle? Uh, is it, um, is it violating? God's plan in some sense, sure. But so is a dog, a dog was made, the dog, the wolf, the wolf, the majestic wolf roaming, living, Uh, becomes what, what these, these, these loving, adorable creatures. But we, we sinned a long time ago when we let these beautiful wolves eat our garbage and we kept the ones that looked like babies, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. This, so this is, um, this is the original sin in a sense, dog wise. Sure. Sure. Phil.
1: And so do you carry guilt for not rescuing a poor abandoned dog and instead buying a designer dog? Is that what I'm gathering?
4: (laughs) So first of all, um, this dog, uh, came to me. Uh, she was originally actually uh, Ronan's mom's dog. And so I okay. like to say that I did rescue pundit from Mia Farrow. Uh, that said, I, I think like rescuing, that made it uh, worse. My, yeah. my, for sure. My serious, my honest, my serious answer is I think that like rescuing a dog, adopting a dog is a wonderful and very good thing to do. And I, but like for me, like I'm allergic to, a lot of dogs. And so like, okay. So is the the,
1: golden doodle hypoallergenic.
4: Yes. And I think, okay. Okay. And the truth is the, there are not like when you try to adopt a, like a hypoallergenic dog, it's actually can be, I think challenging sometimes. Mm -hmm, So all mm -hmm. I'm saying is I support, I think there should be no dog shaming.
1: Um, No dog shaming. I think. Okay. So therefore you're not going to hell for pundit.
4: No, absolutely not.
1: Definitely not. Okay. All right. I accept that answer. Absolutely not. This one is more holiday themed. Okay. Am I going to hell for being grateful a pandemic means that I don't have to see my family over the holidays?
4: I think there are I think there are a lot of people who like I haven't seen my parents in a year. I think it's really hard for my mother. I miss my family. I think that there are a lot of people out there that this has been a bit of a reprieve. And you know what? No. You don't have to feel bad if that's your situation. Not even for a second. This year totally. 2020 has been a terrible year. It has been bad for everybody. It has been truly awful for a lot of people. One of the worst years in people's lives, worst experiences of people's lives. If you're getting some small benefit of reprieve, uh, we have enough to feel bad about without adding some needless guilt to the pile. Take the guilt off the pile. right For that, take the guilt off the pile. Absolutely. Give give yourself that gift.
0: Put that in your stocking.
4: Put that by the menorah. Love that. Multi-faith. It's a multi-faith conversation. Love this. Absolutely. Of course it is.
1: My last one for you, John Lovett. Am I going to hell, again, completely anonymous, definitely not from Employs of Crooked Media. Yeah, sure. Am I going to hell for for lying to the listeners of Crooked Media about which sponsors I actually like?
4: (laughs) If that's something that you're doing, uh, first of all, yes. If that's something that you're doing, yeah,
1: lying for ads. That's okay. So you think? So did Britney Spears? Is Britney Spears going to hell for her Pepsi
4: endorsement? I. What reason do we have to believe that she doesn't love Pepsi?
1: I. I thought she was more of a Diet Coke drinker. Wasn't that the whole scandal?
4: Oh, I don't even. I didn't. I didn't know that. Talking, talking to the wrong mom
1: about this one too. Look at that. Okay, my
4: Brit. Look, listen. I got bigger fish to fry on Britney. We're not. There's only what we got to get. We got to. What's save your fish her. to fry with Britney? She's in trouble. She's trapped. She is in
1: trouble. You're right.
4: Our princess is in another castle. You're right. Uh, we have to. So so. I, I, you know. Look. Uh, I completely believe in every. You have to. I believe in all these. Everything that I say.
1: But you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why are you smiling? I'm not. You're not smiling. Mm-mm. Okay. The listeners can't see, but I can see. I don't know what you're talking about. What?
4: <laughs> okay, taking
3: nope. a page out of the Trump playbook.
4: I see like, what Kaylee in the flesh. <laughs> I'm not gonna be. How dare you? How do da- Excuse I'm me, excuse dude, me, I'm just, excuse I'm just me. Just the innocent this employee is why of a company I don't do Crooked. things like that. This is why I don't sit down for conversations like that because I come in here to have a nice conversation, and Philip Leslie Stahl Picardy brings this negative that. energy. The second yep. I sit down, he says, are you ready for some tough questions? And I'm like, tough questions? I thought we were here to have a conversation. So you know what? I think I've given you enough of my time. I've given you enough of my time.
1: Wow. Okay, well, listen, everyone, all of our listeners, Crooked Media's network, you heard it here first. John Lovett just walked out of his unholier-than-thou expose interview. I can't believe this is happening, but it was, um, it was, I guess, a pleasure, a perverse pleasure to have him. John Lovett, wherever you are, thank you for
4: joining us, and I will see you in hell. Thank you for having me. I'm still here. and I'll break the character to say that I'm still here, and this is wonderful. Thank you for having me. <laughs>
1: Well, folks, that's all for our show today. If you like what you hear, spread the holiday cheer. Leave us a review, give us five stars, and send some practical magic our way. We'll see you next week. I'm Holier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Brian Semmel is our associate producer, and Sydney Rapp is our assistant producer, with production support from Ruben Davis. The theme song is by Taka Yasuzawa and the show is executive produced by me, Lyra Smith, and Sarah Geismer. Thanks for listening.